Henry, Vicky and I are from the world of building things, from buildings, railways, airports, nuclear power stations, you name it. We, we're involved with that. And um, and, I get, uh, and I guess context to Henry, Vicky, I, I met Chris in uh, San Francisco a couple, last, last April, April before. It must be two years now. And uh, learn all about all the stuff he's up to, what he's been up to uh, and what have you. And the thing that struck me about listening to where gaming is going, like the distinction between the games that we play in building buildings virtually and connecting them virtually and the games of people putting people in virtual space. I think the gap between those two things is just going to, they're going to hit, they're going to collide, they're going to merge. They already have. Um, so it's, it's a conversation around a little bit of the history of games, because I think like we, you know, there's some um, like the user interface design around games is really interesting. I think that ethics question around games is really interesting because it's it, yeah, exactly applies. I think that behavioral loop stuff and getting people addicted into things um, and playing essentially playing on people's like emotional mechanics um, is, is an interesting conversation. I think there's there's a there's a lot I'd like to touch on some of the more nitty gritty architecture type stuff like a little bit of like the reality of how you coded things way back when to to now on cloud technology and and just the the boundless potential of you know we're at a point now where we could just have everybody in one game playing and collaborating and doing something Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Uh, I'm here, Henry Femby Taylor. I'm Neil, Vicky Reynolds. Neil Thompson. And we have Chris Taylor with us. Say hi, Chris. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Hey, Chris, it's great to have you on the podcast. You might not seem like the obvious choice for uh-huh. us for the uh, Digital Twin Fan Club. And so I think it would be great if we start by hearing a little bit more about who you are and, uh, and what you do. Right. Well, my name is Chris Taylor. I... Uh, Started uh, making video games in the uh, in the 80s, and I did that. Uh, I've been doing making games for you know thirty uh, something years, and uh, I started up at a little company in Canada called Distinctive Software. Uh, my first games, uh, some folks may have actually played. They're a Hardball Two, Forty Boxing, uh, Triple Play Baseball. Then I moved on uh, down into the United States and I uh, built a team and we created a game called Total Annihilation. Um, After Total Annihilation and an expansion pack, uh, the core contingency, I founded a company called Gas Powered Games, which I uh, sold 15 years later to a company called Wargaming, the folks who make World of Tanks. And that was quite a journey that covered almost 30 years. And I'm happy to go into details on any of that that you guys want to talk about. That's really cool. Um, as someone who I know, I know Henry and Neil um, have been gamers to a certain extent, to a certain extent um, over the years. Um, someone who hasn't really, um, but actually, the more I've got involved in um, in BIM and the built environment and the technology that we're using there, the more intrigued I am um, by uh, by gaming and things like that. Um, I just find the the titles of um, of some of the games that you said they're really um, really interesting. They're sort of um, they they are what. You do. I'm guessing uh, there was some about driving there, and some about um, 
other just day, daily activities. And is that something um, in gaming that's really important is to make it, uh, do people enjoy a gaming environment being practical, like driving? Yeah. In fact, when I first got into the business, I was introduced to this term and it was called high concept. High concept probably, if I looked it up, probably came out of Hollywood. If you have a movie or a book or a piece of art that speaks directly to a person, then they know exactly what experience they're going to get in that box, in that book, in that movie, because it's high concept. So if you create a game that isn't a high concept, what you have is you have a difficult time at retail when folks go to look at them, to shop and buy them because they don't know what's in the box. They have never heard of it before. And you've seen some of these psychedelic names on products and games and so forth before. Um, and you've gone, huh, I don't get it. And you buy something that's high concept. You buy that racing game, you buy a helicopter game, you buy a, a, a tank mm -hmm. game. And the thing about it is, is that those other games can be very, very successful. Like say Pac-Man, which was a show on a show called High Score that I just, uh, that's on Netflix now. Um, but you had to have a word, you have to have it in front of people. It's perfect if it's an arcade game. Arcade games were perfect for, for non-high concepts because people were just seeing the screen running and they could put a quarter in and play it. There was no, there's no downside. But when you're looking at a box that's 30, 40, 50, even $60, you really do need to understand what's in there. And so, of course, you need word of mouth. And word of mouth takes time to spread throughout the gaming community uh, for people. So back in the early days, it was so important to sell what you made, you tended to keep everything very, very high concept. That's really interesting. And I think that's our first parallel maybe with the built environment and... Um, because I've found people tend to connect more with the term digital twin than they do with the concept. And I'm not sure, Chris, um, your understanding of the two terms or the differences between them, um, but uh, BIM can be a little bit more um, technology-based when you start to describe what it is. It's um, uh, a, a process of information management that can um, that can help you design a building in in a very practical way, often with three D geometry. Um, but to to view that, you often need licenses for certain softwares. You need a certain set of skills um, and and digital capability that doesn't always come naturally in our industry. Um, whereas the idea of a digital twin, I think people assume that that's something that's going to be a lot more almost gamified um, and the concept seems easier to um, to grasp. I think you're, you're bang on. It's, it's that high concept point that uh, Chris was just talking about. You can just say, we're going to make a digital twin of your building. Okay. I know. I, I don't know any of the details. I don't know really what that means and there'll be loads of decisions to make down the line, but if, if I said I'm going to make a digital twin of your house, do you know what we mean? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, you get clues contextually. If you're talking to someone at the grocery store versus someone in a computer uh, science industry, you get, you know, you, you kind of tune in pretty quick to what they mean. So I think so. I mean, it, a tagline is nice. A digital twin 
where you can, you know, walk through in a, in a virtual world. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't hurt either. You, you often get a tagline, even in a film, you know, you get a, like I, I use film as an analogy quite a bit because you, again, you have to communicate something, um, you know, in a, in a, in a soundbite, the elevator pitch, you know, mm-hmm. that's the other thing. So if you, if you can't get it in the high concept, you've got to get it in the elevator pitch. And I think we've, uh, we're always very keen on, you know, when we're talking about concepts, you're, you're building on people's existing knowledge. So if you can be the one that sets what that foundation is, then, you know, you can set yourself up as being the, the grand poobah of all knowledge. So you got to be careful when you're an influencer, when you're someone who has <laughs> a voice. Um, yeah. You got to say good things, I guess, because, you know, it's like if you I always had this thought. This was going back 20 years. Ago. If, if you made a movie on motorcycles because you loved motorcycles and these guys in the movie can do anything on motorcycles, they can jump across buildings, they can slide underneath semi trucks. You know, if the movie's a big hit, some kid out there is going to get on a motorcycle and kill himself. Yeah. And you'd be like, oh God, you know, you gotta live with that when you're in the when you're in the arts. You know, you you can make a difference in the world. I know that's a little maybe too deep, but uh, you know, when I made games, I'll I'll segue into this very quickly in that I I like to tend I tended to blow up robots yeah. because yeah. it was taking violence, which we all seem to really love, and moved it to a space where we couldn't apply it back to our lives. You, you can't go out one night on a drunken binge and blow up someone's nuclear reactor. Well, maybe you can, I should probably, you're, they're big birth. <laughs> if cannon. you could, they need to sort that security out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of really trying to make it more chess. Like I wanted to make real time strategy more like a chess game. No one was ever inspired to violence after a playing a game of chess. That's my, that's my theory anyway. Cause it was too cerebral. It was, yeah. And it was too, just too tired afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, oh man, I lost again. I've been up since I've been up. um, It's three a.m. and I've got to be up at seven. Oh no! (laughs) Oh yeah, that's true. If you're playing TA, uh, TA had a had a notorious design. um, If you want to call it a flaw, uh, you could say that it's a flaw that a game doesn't come to closure in a sort of normal period of time. That it had a perpetuality to it. Mm. And that people could, you could very legitimately criticize the game for not wanting to kind of close out. It's interesting because I think when people make games now, they seem to start with the addiction loop, with the game cycle. Like what's the, what's the, like that's, what's the core game loop? And that's kind of what matters, what gets them in, what keeps them in. And it's kind of like, okay, we've done that. Now let's make a game as well as this addiction machine. Is that, is that unfair? It, well, no, I think you're right. I think a lot of people do. And I actually think it brings up an important question from a game design perspective of ethics. Mm-hmm. Do you, as a game designer, have ethics? Um, because if you go back to the coin-op days, there's a Netflix special that just came out in the last week or so uh, called uh, Game Over or High Score. I think it's High Score. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and they talked about the early days of the coin-op machines. If people could play them forever, then one person stood at this machine on one quarter and then the revenue went down. And so this group of folks uh, made these modification boards. It's all in the show, uh, which I highly recommend, 
um, they, 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 that made the game harder, but more compelling and more difficult to master. So there was still pleasure there. There was still sort of entertainment pleasure, but you literally ate your quarters a lot faster and the revenue of the machines went up. And you, you kind of get into that ethical gray area like, yeah, you do want more money, but it is more exciting and entertaining to play a game that is challenging than to stand in front of a game for four hours because you've memorized all the patterns. When I first got started the business, uh, it was at a little company called Distinctive Software up in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. And they uh, assigned me a game to work on, my first game. And it was called Hardball 2, which I did fully build. But after I was working on it for about a month, they said, we really need help with a game called Test Drive 2. A gentleman was working on it and he had to leave. He left. Uh, he'd been working on the game for about a year. The games usually generally only took a year or 18 months. And he took off because he won the lottery or something. And he went to, he went to, tr to travel the world and just said, peace, you know, peace out. Uh, and uh, they said, Chris, we're in kind of a jam because we've got this guy who was supposed to finish his code. And I jumped in and I worked on it for four weeks and ended up rewriting it all with the lead engineer of the project, Amory Wong, who literally did all the driving simulation and all the complicated road. Uh, back then it was complicated because you didn't have very fast computers and to draw the road fast was a trick. It was a trick of programming and engineering uh, um, you know, uh, you know what people were basically paid to do, which is to get more out of the machine than you could. But I digress. So we rewrote the whole front end of Test Drive Two in four weeks and shipped the game, and that was the that was the work. And then later on, I did a version of it on the Sega Genesis and wrote I wrote the sprite engine and the sixty eight thousand and did more work. But these weren't my main. These weren't like you know, the main thrust of my career. This that was, was, that was you breaking in, I think, breaking well, was, into the industry. I was some, back at Electronic Arts, they did this thing where when things were in trouble, they'd take folks and they'd reassign them to something to get it done because it needed to get out the door. It needed to ship. We called it shipping. That was the old term. I don't know if people use that today because stuff physically went into boxes and was shipped to the store. So they said, we're going to ship this. We're going to ship that, ship, ship, ship. So um, when something had a date or a deadline, you know, you put people on it and you got it out the door and then folks went back to what it was they were doing before. Um, so there was a little bit of that, but my primary games were hardball two and then 40 boxing uh, and then triple play baseball. And then I left after virtual stadium baseball for the 3DO, which was a port of triple play. Uh, to the 3DO player, which I don't know if you guys know anything yeah, about. Yeah, man, the 3DO. It was a trip, was a trip Hawkins um, um, uh, venture because he had founded Electronic Arts, was really successful, and then decided he was going to build his own console, gaming console, and he was going to make it super powerful because all the consoles at the time were kind of kind of uh, low powered. The part of the that's a really fun and interesting story unto itself, but. Um, and we can maybe, maybe that's story for another day, but they needed, they, they, it happened to take off in Japan. It was failing in the other countries, but it took off in Japan and baseball for some reason was popular in Japan. So they wanted to take triple play and port it uh, to the 3DO. And I did that work. And then when I finished, I was like, I've had enough. I really had had enough baseball. Um, <laughs> which I think people can appreciate after doing three baseball games, I left and I found, and I sort of, I, I hooked up with Ron Gilbert 
and total annihilation came next in the story. And I literally took what I learned from baseball and I turned that into total annihilation. So can you imagine the genealogy or the, the genetic flow chart of how you get from a baseball game to a real-time strategy game with real physics. And it's not that hard when you realize the baseball is basically just a projectile and the batter is the unit that fires that projectile. You just got, so, instead of, it's baseball, but there's 300 guys with, with some guys correct. have bigger bats, some guys have bigger balls. As it that, that's, that's what they say. So here we go. End of part one. Projectiles, balls, the internet of things, games and twins. A huge thank you to Chris. He'll be joining us again in part two. And just to remind you that Chris Taylor is a gaming legend. Um, He's one of the few people that has received five, well, over 5,005 stars for his game Total Annihilation on Steam. So that guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to creating legendary games. And learn more about Chris, Twins, and the gaming industry in part two.